This episode is sponsored by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to a variety of podcast sponsorship opportunities, such as interview segments, topical discussions, and more. We utilize Podcorn because it easily allows us to browse opportunities on the website and work with brands directly without any exclusivities. Access Podcorn to help support your podcast by signing up at podcorn.com forward slash podcasters. Hi, this is Ted Price from Insomniac Games. One of the more beautiful games to be released this year, in my opinion, is Spiritfarer from Thunder Lotus. Its art, its theming, its gameplay are a refreshing break from a lot of the larger games we've been seeing grabbing headlines. I am a big fan, and I was really happy to have a chance to talk with Will Dubay, who's the CEO of Thunder Lotus, and Nick Garan, its creative director. Join us as we talk about creating such a unique and stylized journey for players. Welcome to The Game Maker's Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Maker's Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. Well, Nick, it is great to have you guys on the Game Maker's Notebook. Thank you very much for taking the time to chat. Thank you, Thank Ted, you. For, for having us, yeah. Well, I've been really curious about how both of you originally got into the games business, because I know you uh, were have been in the games business for a while before starting Spiritfarer. But what, what inspired you to jump in? Uh, Will, do you want to go? Uh, well, both Nick and I have uh, different backgrounds. Uh, I started in mobile games uh, out of school. Uh, I had done a, a Bachelor of Computer Science with a double major in Computation Arts, uh, which was very uh, broad, but also a great uh, base for video games because you basically get to look at a whole bunch of different things. So out, out of school, uh, being in Montreal, uh, we're very lucky to have a really amazing ecosystem, a lot of different studios, a lot of opportunities for games. Uh, it's a really an amazing studio for game developers. Uh, and I was able to find a job as a level designer uh, in a mobile game company. We we're doing a, uh, it was a startup. We we're doing free to play mobile games. And then in 2014, I'd been, you know, watching all these amazing games get made on Kickstarter and, and seeing that uh, it was like two, 2012, 2013, all the explosion of, of Kickstarter. It was really inspiring for me. Uh, and it was um, seeing that pushed pushed me to uh, to put uh, Joden on Kickstarter, uh, and that was kind of the, the beginning of, of Thunder Lotus for me. Right. Uh, as for me, I'm uh, I'm a decade old, older than than Will, so my background goes a bit, uh, you know, longer. Uh, mm-hmm. But essentially, I've been playing games for all my life. When I when I was a teenager, I was you know uh in class in the classroom and you know uh, i should have been studying more but i was designing pen and paper rpgs basically and at some point uh, i moved to paris to work uh and then i met a couple of friends of mine who worked at ubisoft back then it was in um, 2005 something like this and then in 2006 i was uh summoned by an actual, you know, uh, well, a friend of mine, bracket, like uh, someone who is an actual, you know, common relationship that Bill and I have. And he was the CEO of uh, EA Montreal. And uh, I started working there. 
as a game designer on a couple of projects, and I moved to Ubisoft in uh, 2008, nine, something like this, where I stayed for almost a decade, and uh, I worked mainly on level design and game design, and uh, more specifically on the Assassin's Creed franchise. I've been a uh, level design director for a couple of games there, uh, Watch Dogs 2 as well, some other games. Um, and then that's, that's you know, at, at some point I was like, uh, looking at what I was doing, and uh, it didn't feel that much rewarding to a degree. And I was really into gaming, uh, into indie gaming. That's where that's when I actually like uh, was aware of what was done here in Thunder Lotus, and I met Will, and here we are. It was a very you know short summary of it. Well, Nick, why didn't why didn't it feel feel fulfilling <laughs> on the larger games? I'm just curious. Ah, uh, well. <laughs> Actually, it's it's uh, and Will is the first the first to tell me no. You shouldn't never you know say that about other companies. I, I, I think the, the the work the work done in Ubisoft is absolutely awesome. I mean, it's 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 work class thing that that happens there. And as we'll say, we're extremely lucky to be in a city that you know allows us to work on such really good titles as Assassin's Creed. Uh, but at the same time, for me, uh, it felt like I've always felt like games should have you know uh, a purpose. And I'm not saying that that. That's not what Assassin's Creed does. Actually, what Assassin's Creed does is is one of the few games that actually try to do something in a very compelling way. Uh, but for me, it felt like I couldn't really achieve a degree of, of I don't know, maybe like a more artistic approach to games. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's in a to me, it felt like at the time, like it was in a smaller structure that uh, this type of of you know uh, goals could be achieved. But the thing that also drew John me through Tunnel Lotus is the fact that I felt like what was done here was, uh, you know, really like uh, a very high quality. Like it felt like indie games that were made with, uh, you know, uh, an excellency, you know, uh, spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I feel the same way looking at at your games, uh, at the Thunder Lotus games. And and speaking of Thunder Lotus, Will, when you started Thunder Lotus, did you have a specific vision for what you wanted to do with the company? Um, for the company, I knew that, that we, you know, we wanted to make PC indie games. That was the, the, the beginning, but when you're starting out, it's hard to differentiate the company from, from the games, especially your first game. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the focus when we started was on Joden on that first game, making sure that, you know, the, all of our efforts were on that. And, you know, at, at looking at studios that, um, you know, that I admire uh, either in the indie space or, or in the AAA space. You know, look at games, uh, studios like Supergiant or Clay or Nintendo, Blizzard. Or, you know, I mean, even Ubisoft as well, to, to a certain extent. Um, you want to be able to build the studio brand, but that takes time and it takes several releases of several excellent games, right? That's kind of like the... Uh, the, the, the path that, that I saw anyways, uh, that's the kind of thing that we were going after. And that really, uh, you know, it, it, it's really hard when you're uh, an entrepreneur and you're starting out, starting your studio and all that. I mean, it, you, you really need to focus. Uh, and for me, it was clear that we needed to focus on quality uh, as much as possible. And that, you know, kind of the, if we, if we do something that's of high quality and, and high standards and, you know, eventually we'll be rewarded for it. Um, and, and, you know, Spirit Fair is kind of the, the great example of that, right? Because Spirit Fair is a much bigger success than our previous games. Uh, and, 
I mean, it's a, it's stepping stepping stones always uh, to get to this point. And, and a lot of learnings from Jotun that went into Sundered, a lot of learnings from Sundered that went into Spiritfarer. Um, and, and that kind of brings us to, to where we are today. Well, when you say focus on quality, I know that I think we all as developers say that we're going to do that. But what specifically does that mean to you? And, and what does that what did that mean you needed to change about Thunder Lotus versus your previous work experiences? Yeah, yeah. Well, in mobile games, I was doing, you know, free to play. So I was doing a bit of monetization as well, all that, a lot of focus on, you know, retention, mechanics and stuff like that. And I think that was one of the things that, that was really not as interesting to me and why I wanted to go into, into PC indie games because I saw that as an outlet for, okay, we can just focus on, you know, the player experience. And I think as, as time has gone on, that the definition of what that means has kind of become more clear. But for me today, I think that the focus on quality, it means always thinking of the player's experience and making sure that, you know, compared to other games out there, compared to, um, you know, experiences that we've had, uh, making sure that, you know, when you put one of our games, when you, you know, put the controller down or you, you put your mouse to the side and you finish the game and you're at the end credits, you know, how, how are you feeling and, and what, is, what is the experience that you're taking away from that? And Kind of that is kind of the maybe like the, the tip of the spear in the sense that the final result of all the work as developers we get to. But what? How do you want uh, a player who's played your game and just finished your game to feel about the experience? And, and what what have they learned? What have they felt? What are the how have they gotten there? And I think that's kind of the end result. I mean, obviously it's very hard to get to that point, and um, getting to that point is never. Uh, never guaranteed. I mean, even even with Spiritfarer, um, you know, up until very, very, very late. Nah, I wasn't. Uh, <laughs> it's a very late. You, you're never sure that you're you're, you're actually going to make it, right? But um, luckily, uh, in this case, we did. But but yeah, I think for for that that that's kind of the, the focus on the player, not getting distracted uh, with other things that you know maybe. Obviously, everything is important. You know, it's, marketing is important. Uh, the price point of the game is important. Everything surrounding the game is important. All the, all the production, uh, business side, everything. But if you can, uh, I think that's our our, our privilege as uh, indie developers that we can kind of be like, hey, we're we're artists and we just want to do this, and and we can kind of focus on that. Uh, I think it, it, you know, it makes for a very authentic experience. Well, I got to ask because it's something I think about all the time. When does, for you, when does quality run headlong into budget and deadlines? Well, uh, oh, that's, <laughs> that's that's the crux of, of it all. I mean, it's <laughs> that's yeah, that's that's the biggest challenge. I think. Yeah. Um, I, the answer to that is is all the time, um, right? Always. Um, usually, it's when. <laughs> Basically, when I mean, at some point you have to have that deadline, right? You have to have, you have to have the deadline, and you 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 physically have you know a certain amount of dollars that you can spend, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's definitely part of it. I think that's one of the hardest things in, in game dev, and from what I've talked to, you know, all, most other studios and all that, it's always how do you get those internal deadlines respected? How do you how do you make the call? You know when when you have to go for something or, or when 
you can delay or when you can push back. And and I mean, Spiritfire is a is a, a great example of of a, a very um, some very difficult decisions towards the end of production where you know we had uh, an opportunity to you know be out now in the Nintendo Direct uh, the indie world. Uh, on August 18th, and it's it was an amazing, amazing opportunity, and it's something that we just couldn't, um, that we just had to do because it, it would be so important for us and important for the game and the the, the marketing and visibility coming from that. So that was kind of like, okay, well, we're, we have to ship here. We're shipping on you know, 27 different SKUs, 27 different platforms uh, simultaneously, and and we have to. But we also have to push a metaphorical number, of course. Yeah, almost, almost metaphorical. Um, but yeah, no, it's a, it's a huge challenge. I can see that from from your perspective, Will. It, it you know it would be articulated this way, but uh, from my perspective, I also saw the the. I mean, every game, actually, every game. That game when we started, uh, we started with an intent, which was you know the. We always like him back to the why, and that's a bit what Will, you know, brushed upon a few seconds ago, which is, what is the game about? Like, what is that game doing that is unique to it? Uh, to me, that's the core of, of what I do: is trying to think of ways to express uh, something through our, our unique medium. Right? It's it's about you know, quality is also in there in a way. I mean, it's there. It has to be. Uh, trying to achieve something. I mean, if, if we didn't even try, I mean, the, we could have like spent countless, you know, uh, man hours and then the deadline wanted if we couldn't really achieve it, right? We has to have like the game itself, like the the product, the the, the, the piece has to have, yeah, exactly. It has to have something at its core that, that means something to us. We would never have like, in my opinion, and I think you can like, correct me if I'm wrong, Will, but we, we, never, we would never have, you know, green lighted something with, which we would have felt was subpar, you know? Well, hopefully. I mean, <laughs> that's, what, that's what we like to, that's what we like to think anyways. And, and I think that's, that's what we're definitely trying to do. And yeah, I mean, that, that's the, the, if we can achieve that purpose, um, you know, in a way that's cheaper on the production side, then, you know, we should try, we should try and do that. And you just try and find all these different ways that you can maximize the, the, the the intent and i think that's that's a lot of, of what um you know art but entertainment in general is about is about how well can you execute on the intent um and i think that's something that that uh, you, you need to have a strong intent and you need to have the, a clear idea of what your intent is and then how do you make that happen and yeah like like nick was saying and kind of what i was saying before how do you want the player to feel when they, they put down the controller um how well did we execute on that intent? Uh, how well did people understand that? Did people understand the message? Did people connect with the game in the, in the way that we wanted them to? Do you think people have with Spiritfarer? Uh, to a degree, I, I think yes. Uh, hopefully, uh, but I, I uh, certainly did. I mean, I'll, I'll admit it. I, I really, I, I read a lot about what you said uh, when it came to the game's design, and I yeah. feel like you delivered on the promise. Cool. Well, thank you. It's it's. I'm very glad to hear that. I mean, yeah. It's it's. It feels like we did. Um, you know, we've re we've received tons of, of of very very touching emails and and communications about how it actually like changed to a very small degree people's lives. Um, mm -hmm. I think that might have something to do with the current condition condition of the you know the fact that we we have to endure you know a pandemic crisis. But 
even though I mean uh, I think we managed to to you know have the point being you know passed across. I mean it felt like it was um, people responding very well to it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at any metric, um, the the game is, is a big success um, in terms of impact. Like like Nick was saying, we've gotten a lot of of private emails and stuff like that. And I mean, just looking at the Steam score, is something that we've always we've always tried to you know you want to try and reach the overwhelmingly positive, and that's an extremely extremely hard thing to do, and it's something that's you know pretty much out of your control. I think up to a certain extent. But what we've always run into in the past with our games is that people had an expectation when going into our games, and then that expectation wasn't fully met in that way. And I think um, the user scores on Steam are an exact. Um, uh, I think they're a great indicator of you know what did, what did people think the game was about, and then when they actually played it, where did they agree with it, and did it you know go above and beyond their expectations? And I think that's a a really strong indicator of, of having uh, succeeded in that regard for sure. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I know it took me by surprise. Uh, I wasn't expecting to experience a game that was frankly relaxing and was a nice escape from probably one of the more challenging years that most people yeah. have had yeah. in modern history. And yeah. it was just seemed really well-timed. And the message that you have in the game about death and, and sort of an optimistic view of, of the afterlife was, I thought, refreshing. But I, I want to ask you more about making the transition from Joden and Sundered to Spiritfarer. So what inspired you to move from more traditional platforming, and in, in Sundered in particular, to the a, a, what felt like a totally different game with exploration and crafting in Spiritfarer? Yeah, um, well, after... Like, uh, I'd say going from game to game was a, a, a big challenge, uh, especially at the beginning. Uh, the first the first time we, we when we, we shipped Jotun on September 29th, 2015, and then we had a submission deadline for funding on October 7th, uh, like, so like a week later. So we had to scramble as a team and figure out what Sundered was and, and to, to, to pitch that to... Um, uh, to the Canada Media Fund, which uh, which uh, funded uh, Joden, they funded Sundered as well. They're a, a federal uh, program in Canada that uh, fund uh, a lot of TV and and uh, but also uh, several several uh, game studios uh, in in Canada. Um, so that was a mess, uh, <laughs> a <laughs> catastrophe. Uh, and then from that point on, we vowed to uh, you know uh, do better in terms of project transitions. Uh, and so when we went from Sunder to Spiritfarer, uh, before Sundered had shipped, we'd already uh, been, you know, shopping around a, a pitch at GDC for Spiritfarer, and we'd already uh, applied for for funding uh, through the CMF and a few other places as well. Um, so we were much better <laughs> at that point. Um, but I think there was a lot of learn in terms of like just the the, the games themselves. When we finished Joden, we we looked at the game and said, okay, well, what worked, what what didn't work. Um, how do we, you know, how do we do something that's different, but also learning from that? Um, we did the same thing uh, from Sundered, and I think as a studio, we've kind of had a, a tendency to overcorrect. Um, mm. So with the uh, with Joden, we said, okay, well, obviously the, the art style, uh, 
you know, our artists on our team are, are, are incredible, uh, incredibly talented artists, animators. Um, so that obviously needs to stay. Uh, and, and I mean, they wouldn't have changed anyways because they're, they're, they're the, the artists on the team. But um, that was a huge uh, positive. The big boss fights was another obviously big, big positive for, for Joden. But what didn't work was, well, the levels in between were, were kind of boring. Uh, and um, the game was very short. Um, it was about five and a half hours to go through it all. So, you know, we had a lot of coverage from streamers and YouTubers and stuff like that. But, you know, they played five hours and then they kind of moved on. So it wasn't, weren't necessarily maximizing people's engagement with the game. or You didn't really have enough meat there to really, uh, you know, sink your teeth into as a player. So with Sunder, we went, you know, pretty extreme in terms of the difficulty and the combat and the hordes and all that. And, uh, I wanted to do something different. Um, so trying to, you know, make a, a Metroid, a procedural Metroidvania. And there were obviously several other games um, with that same idea. We looked into the same crystal ball as us, I guess, uh, at that time. Uh, and then uh, we kind of botched Sunder's launch. Um, <laughs> For uh, it's a long, long story, but uh, basically the game was just way too hard when it launched. It, it hurt our reviews and then it hurt the game, uh, and uh, that's our responsibility. But we also shipped after uh, two small games called Hollow Knight and Dead Cells, um, right. which basically reinvented the, the 2D, uh, the standard for 2D action platformers uh, in the in the game. So. Uh, we were responsible for certain things on Sunder, but obviously uh, shipping after those two monsters uh, definitely uh, wasn't the greatest. But going after Sundered um, and that launch and, and all that, I mean, one of the takeaways on the team was, well, Will, you can't be creative director anymore. Um, there's too much going on with the studio and uh, your role as, as CEO is taking up too much time. And, and the team was right. Uh, and up to that point, we'd been really successful in terms of making, you know, interesting games that were very beautiful um, and that were relatively fun. But we wanted to, to, to amp up um, the fun in our games. We wanted to make a game uh, that was beautiful, uh, that had, you know, really strong intent, really strong meaning but was also really fun to play. Uh, and then internally on the production side, it was kind of getting to a point where it was clear that my role had transitioned more into the, to the CEO role and, and I had to move away from production and the day-to-day -day of production. So that's when we opened up a, a position for creative director. And that's when Nick uh, ended up joining us at the end of 2017. Uh, and at that point, I think we already had, uh, you know, a relatively clear idea of where we're going with the game with Spirit Fair. But um, he really came in and was like, well, yes, but you need to take this you know, way further. And, and we need to look at the mechanics and how, how this game, this management game is going to work and, you know, uh, how the how the spirits have to be the core uh, of the of the experience and the real, real core of the game. And, and building around them uh, and making everything tick around yeah. theirs. It's funny, I remember the, the first day I arrived at the studio, there was a, a stand-up meeting every morning and it was a, a board, like it was post-its on the wall. And the, 
on under Will's task, there was like hire a creative director, and he just like removed the the post-it <laughs> the first on the first day. <laughs> it was very fun, but yeah, yeah that's that's how post-its, we post-its work. Yeah, uh, at they, a certain it, at a certain team size, they work. Uh, <laughs> at a certain t- team size, they they stop working. But uh, now we shipped uh, two games before that with, with post-its on a wall. So. Well, well, actually, that leads to another question about just how you, what, how your process works. Do you, do you all create your macro design first or your story? I mean, Spirit yeah. Fair has some pretty complex mechanics, and to me at least, in terms of the how the macros laid out, how crafting works, the, the economy. How, yeah. did, how did you how do you handle that normally? Uh, well, first. Um, well, well stated a bit. Um, I started by just looking at the core idea, and the core idea was a very simple, very strong, um, and that's what actually you know convinced me to join the company. It was that on one one side, it was uh, an old you know uh, picture from Karen, so in the in the Greek mythology, the the ferryman of the souls. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, it was a picture from my neighbor Totoro from from Hayao Miyazaki, mm-hmm. and uh, just that idea, you know, like. Uh, allowed me to to as we'll say like to establish you know a, a direction now for the the structuring of it um i think the quite soon into it maybe like two or three months uh i had like laid out um the first thing i, do, I didn't I don't know if you remember really, but it was a i i took a wall and i just tried to describe the game uh, to go back a bit in history uh that pitch I just gave you was the pitch Will gave uh, before I joined the company. And the first question everyone asked was, Will, question was? Well, the question was, was Will, it was like, yeah, but, you know, how does it play? What, what is it? Yeah, what do you do? What's the uh, loop? How do you do it? Uh, everyone was convinced by the, the strength of the pitch itself. It's just like the how the game design was articulated around this that was really weird. And it is weird. I mean, Spirit Fair is a bit of a weird game. You do have like platforming elements and uh, complex uh, economic loops, but all of those, all of those, you know, systems they only work for one thing, which is taking care of people. Uh, and that's the first thing I did, which is like, as we'll say, the spirits are front and center. They are the one that you have to care about. Now, all the mechanics they have to revolve around, around this. And uh, it was a mix of things that was already th- that were already there, like uh, picture everything, like three C. You had the character moving around a bit, uh, so I worked a bit on that. But the team uh, beforehand had very strong experience and very high quality development on that uh, specific topic, so it was working pretty well. But everything else had to be, you know, um, you know, I've been making games for a long time, and I something that that I always say that story, but uh, I told you in the beginning of the interview, I started in EA. And I don't know if you've met that guy, but at the beginning, it was in 2007, but Bing Gordon was in charge mm-hmm. of, he was the CCO in here, so the chief creative officer from, for, for, for Electronic Arts. And they came up with the idea of having an X. I'm sure you tell you're familiar with it. Oh, yeah. yeah. And um, we've, we've actually worked with EA before, so uh, yeah. I remember. Exactly. And, and sure. it actually struck with me that, I, that you have to have a very simple elements that help you define a game. And it's everything but easy like every studios tries to do that every 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 team tries to come up with with this I mean, it's it's a very tough thing but lo and behold sometimes it works uh sometimes you have to have that idea of a very simple concept and 
to me, it always felt like game design was a was a tool rather than a, a mean to an end. Um, so, as a whole, like mechanics should all uh, have worked towards you know helping people around. Uh, there was already the idea of having a light farm sim game. So Stardew Valley and Harvest Moon were game, were, were names that were you know like always up in the air when we started working on the project. So it was rather easy to actually transition from that concept of having a, you know an evolving management farm sim like structure into something that helps you uh, focus on people and, and the reason why you do that. Actually, it was pretty uh, simple. And something that I've seen, you know, uh, repeated to me by, by players, which was, I love farm sims, I love Stardew Valley, but usually towards the end, my interest drops because I don't know why I'm doing all that. And mm-hmm. for us, it was rather, you know, the, an easy solution. The reason why you do all this is for other people. And it worked in the metaphor we created. It worked in the in the concept. So it was um, it was it felt a bit natural, you know. So were there other games that you had looked at for educational purposes to understand where to take the various systems and how to sort of improve on things that were already out, already out there? From a gameplay perspective, I'd say yes. I mean, we I remember we at the beginning we had also uh, as Undertale, an example, yeah, yeah Undertale, Undertale as a, exactly as an inspiration uh, as well. Yeah. Right, Undertale was interesting because it it was like trying to do something like really a very classic uh, formula, which was the 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 uh, you know uh, turn by turn RPG uh, formula, mm-hmm. and try to spin it on its head and try to do something different and and say you can do every encounter without really having to fight, and that was a spin that was interesting. Um, so it was entirely different from what we did spread for, but still it was that concept of trying to. Um, actually use the same mechanics as you would do it normally, but in a completely different context. Um, yeah, in terms the of idea of having a bunch of characters and, and stuff like that, you know, if you right, look at games yeah. even like, uh, right. I don't know, like a Mass Effect 2, where it's all about the crew and all about the people that you have to go get and, and that kind of idea. Absolutely. But to go back to Ted's question about, about you know, game mechanics in other games, um, something that is uh, quite there in Spirit for are mini games. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's something which is, in my opinion, uh, very important to nail down as a designer, which is understanding the core principle behind challenge and difficulty and all that. I mean, something that I'm really thankful uh, to Ubisoft is um, to go a bit into what a company did is they actually trained every designer into doing something they call RCP, which is rational creative process. It stemmed from something that emerged, uh, if I remember correctly, from a talk made by a game, uh, lead game designer at Naughty Dog on Uncharted 1. Hmm. And he talked about rational level design, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And it's just very specifically, you know, the uh, the thinking of the process in a much more rational way. Uh, and minigames are a very good example of that. So we created minigames uh, also based on, on tons of minigames that you can play in, in games like, you know, Mario Party. And, and I've been always, you know, a fan of, of the WarioWare series uh, way back when. So it's uh it's it's tiny elements of of game design that go together, and that help you create a chain, and then you create a loops on them. But from a from an inspirational you know, uh, principle, yes, farm sim. So Stardew Valley, Harvest Moon, uh, Undertale, and to me other mini games games, and um, which is something that you know um, coming back from from that rational creative process uh, concept of trying to design around uh, rational elements. Uh, Minigames are awesome because you can actually, you know, uh, 
boil down to a few mechanics, a few inputs, a few challenge systems. And uh, yeah, every like tons of, of mini games uh, that happen in very cool games like Mario Party, or I was a fan of the WarioWare series uh, way back when are, you know, examples of how you can actually like um, dissect, dissect a bit, you know, a mechanic and how to turn that into something that is uh, fun and fulfilling to do. Um, so to a degree, Spirit Fairy is a, is a collection of things that work together uh, rather than um, continuum of things. I don't know if it answers, but yeah. So in, well, in two actually, inspirations. Yeah. Sure. And with, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned minigames because, you know, that's, I, that is a, a really fun aspect of the game for me because it keeps things varied. With, yeah. Since you were, I imagine, trying out a lot of different minigames, were there mechanics that you were excited about at first but then ended up abandoning? Yeah, actually, uh, so many. <laughs> well, we prototyped a lot. I mean, that, that's a very cool thing we 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 had uh, working there, which has uh, which is you know we had a um, a very talented uh, junior programmer with us, Luke, and uh, we we made tons of prototypes of mini games. But the the biggest uh, surprise for us uh, was how hard it was to create mini games that were fun to do in, in co op. I mean, the co op was a at the beginning of the project, a very strong aspect of Spirit Fair, and we wanted to make sure that another uh, couch co-op player could join. And um, it amounted to be, you know, it's hard to do everything at once. Uh, and every time we had a co-op mechanic, it was hard to find the good counterpart, the good counterpart in single player and the opposite. I don't know if you see what I mean. Like there is a mechanic where you have to cut a tree down and in co-op, you have to synchronize your move. It's really simple. It's not really challenging, but it's just like it helps you have fun with someone else. So playing that in single player, uh, translated kind of poorly. I mean, it works, but it's not really, I mean, it's not a fun activity per self, per, per, you know, <laughs> per se. Um, so yeah, I guess co-op was the, the biggest challenge for, for minigames. Some others worked uh, a bit more. I mean, there is a, an activity in the foundry where you have to uh, you know, push a bellow. Um, and it works quite well in co-op because you can do that alternatively, you know, one and the other. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I guess that was the, the biggest hurdle. Yeah. How long did it take you to find the fun factor or that it was that, did you, or maybe a better question is, did you have a light bulb moment in the early part of prototyping where you realized that the game was going to be fun? Oh my God, no, <laughs> that was terrible. <laughs> Actually, that, that was the probably, I mean, we're still, you know, the game has shipped like a month ago and we're still processing what's going on. And, uh, you know, we have tons of, of post-mortem to do like internally and technically, but most probably the thing that will come up is how far it was to, to feel what the game was. Mm. Uh, it was extremely clear in my mind, but only in my mind. And I was extremely scared. Uh, I mean, I remember like the we had with Will like a couple of months ago about yeah, but I mean, we don't really have it yet, right? Um, because the f well, the fun factor uh, to me was more of a uh, did the game uh, deliver on the promise we made, which is kind of make people cry in a way. So having that emotional connection to the passengers and to the stories and to the life and feel that you are losing something uh, that came really late because it has it had to be like a mix of everything together. You had to have the music, you had to have the the animations, the characters, the systems working. Um, yeah, but I've it been was talking... also the the accumulation of all the things uh, leading up to that moment. So, like at the beginning of 2020, we had what like you could play the game for like five or six hours uh, until things started yep. to be too 
too rough or not implemented yet and stuff like that. And for me, that's when I saw, that's when we had the quest system in, it's when we had all the, the, the building blocks, uh, the exploration, the building, the quests, uh, the spirits. That's the point for me where I was like, okay, this, like, it, it's going to work. You're going to connect to, um, uh, to Gwen. Gwen is the, the deer spirit. It's the first spirit on the boat. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's the my first, favorite character, the by the way. She's, she's cool. awesome. Yeah, she's really cool. Uh, and only this year, like, I played the game. I was like, oh, okay, it's, it's going to work. <laughs> it's, it's, if we can execute on that. And then obviously, you know, in the, in the goodbye and all that is, is a lot of, um, you know, music is an enormous part of emotion, mm-hmm. any uh, medium. Well, Will, in, in your position, did you have to spend a lot of time convincing others that even though the bells and whistles weren't there to fill in the blanks, that it was going to be great? Um, so the, the beauty of, of having an amazing art team is that uh, they make beautiful things. <laughs> <laughs> so that makes my job much easier. And when you're, when you're trying to sell something, um, it, it's much, 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 uh, or, or pitch something or convince partners or to, to work with you. It's much easier if you have you know, a really strong image, a really strong uh, video. Uh, it makes my life way easier. And it's the same way that people approach games in general when they, you know, the first thing you, you see or hear about a game is usually like a, a GIF or a screenshot or a trailer. Um, you know, obviously humans are very, very visual. So for me, having that, that, that strength in the studios, is, is, it makes my, my life way easier. Let's talk about the art because for me, I when playing the game, I was wondering most of the time, how did you create such beautiful hand-drawn art or what looks like hand-drawn art with such fluidity without employing a team of, you know, a hundred tweeners? I mean, that's, that's like an old school question, but what were the tools that you used to really create that nice fluid hand-drawn approach? Uh, well, um, really want to answer or... No, no, go ahead. Okay, um, so it's 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 both pretty simple and pretty complicated. I mean, the uh, the, the process is exactly the the same as the process uh, you know used in in classical two D animation, which is you have an art director, uh, which is that person who actually makes all the drawings, so the references for all characters and and and, and objects and every environments and everything, and then you have to have animators that understand really well the intention behind the drawing, not not just understanding but be able to reproduce them extremely faithfully. So um, Alex, our uh, very talented animation director, he was really good in working with Johnny as well, our art director. Um, to The two of them were working in pair, have been working in pair for a long time. So they know uh, and they understand each other and they know what to do uh, to make things simpler for the animation side and better uh, for the art side. An example of this is Stella. Uh, it was an awesome work made by, by Joanny and, uh, and, and Will to do it because it wasn't even there then yet. Um, but there is, ama- yeah. <laughs> there is an amount, yeah. There is an amount of, Stella? It's not me, it's all, it's all, it's all Joe. No, I know, I know, I know, I know it's all Joanny, but it's, I mean, uh, Stella was there when I arrived. It was, she was already right, designed. Right, right. And uh, there is a, a specific amount of details of silhouette that she knows translates really well into animation. Um, the uh, it's, it's all very heavy, uh, to be honest. I mean, things that player might expect as something simple is really complex for us, like customization. Like, hey, I want to change Stella's a hat. 
Well, it turns out it's entirely impossible because you have mm-hmm. to make that character and animate her entirely by hand, frame by frame. Uh, but the shape of the hat, the uh, clothing, the colors, uh, the animators have to uh, be able to make tons of frames really fast. And if the character is too complex, you just can't. Um, yeah, I'll jump in here, though. The, the, yeah. uh, it's not fully frame by frame. There's a lot of cheating going on. Right. Uh, and a lot of, uh, of tweening, we use, uh, our animators use Toon Boom, um, mm-hmm. uh, and you can do, uh, you know, uh, what's it called? Uh, just, um, yeah, tweening and, uh, you cheat, you don't have to redraw all the, uh, all of the, all the frames and, and, and you're asking how you do, how you do, uh, what they've done without having a hundred animators is that you cheat at every single opportunity uh, you take every single shortcut you, that you can when you can you know just use your puppet uh, even though uh, things certain animations will be uh, redrawn frame by frame in the more traditional side uh, if you don't have a change of uh, angle on an animation so if you don't have for example if uh, if you have if you're looking at a character uh, let's say Stella in her running animation she's running from left to right uh, her arms and legs move up and down uh, or left to right, and there's no angle change on them. So you don't actually have to redraw them. In Toon Boom, you can use the puppet uh, on that character uh, to move the bones around. And, you know, in the same way that you'd animate a, a 3D character. Yeah, there's a technical mix, but there's still a, a very uh, important you know, uh, relationship between the art and the animation itself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, coming from a 3D world, it's sort of mind-blowing to me that you can make what you've made, which you know, 3D generally makes things a little bit easier because you make the model once and you animate it and you can flatten it if you want to. But I, I mean, I think it really comes through. Your, your games, all of your games have a really beautiful traditional approach that sets them apart. And, and with that in mind, do you feel that your, your identity, your future is in stylized games? Or do you see yourself branching off in a different direction someday? So big announcement: Thunder Lotus is next game for the v- shooter VR. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> no, uh, no, we're definitely sticking with uh, 2D uh, hand-drawn uh, hand-drawn animation. I mean, it's like I was kind of saying before: your your identity as a studio exists only through the games. I mean, not only through the games you make, but is strongly uh, created, influenced by the games that you make. And, and I think it's it's definitely safe to say that uh, that the 2D art for us has uh, uh, become a huge uh, trademark and, and it's something that, that, that we're definitely uh, sticking with. Well, that's fantastic to hear. And I'll, I'll say too, I'll just add to what you're saying. I also think that the characters you make become part of the identity of the studio. And with that in mind, I know that, mm. that we at Insomniac spend a, a enormous and ridiculous amount of time agonizing over character design, character personality, et cetera. W- what was it like coming up with Stella? Was it easy? Uh, was, it, was, it, was it just sort of an immediate decision? You knew what you wanted to make or did you go back and forth between different genders, different looks? Right. Well, I can talk about, you know, after the design, but we can talk about the design of the character itself. Um, yeah, I mean, originally Stella and Daffodil were uh, brother and sister. Um, in the first pitch, the first original pitch, um, 
it was really important. I didn't uh, even know. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And the first, uh, <laughs> if you look at like the first first PowerPoints, we ended up showing a few a few people way back when. Uh, that would have been in what spring 2017, I guess. Um, we had big hats uh, and uh, similar similar characters and stuff, but the character design—I mean, I can't really talk about it so much. It's it's much more uh, Joe. Yeah, Johnny. Uh, uh, she's a, a, a an extremely talented uh, character designer. I mean, mm-hmm. among other things. Um, I know that part of the process for her. Uh, one important thing is, um, you know, just having something that's iconic, uh, that's different, uh, a, a character that, that, you know, doesn't really look or remind you of other characters is something that she really uh, strives for. And actually, it's interesting because uh, on our first game, Jotun, uh, I was more involved in the you know, creative uh, character design and stuff like that because of the context and because it was, you know, uh, I was working more alone at that point and the team hadn't really been built up. Um, you can tell that Thora is, you know, a bit more in the Viking tropes and you know, less, maybe a bit less original in that sense, whereas Esh is definitely a different, uh, in a different direction. And you can see kind of Joanie, uh, who's a much better character designer than I am, uh, obviously, uh, you know, being able to do it, and for Stella, uh, it was about the uh, the Everlight. Uh, it was about the big hat, having a hat that, having an outfit or a character that someone can cosplay as well. Something that's mm. that'll stand out, that'll look different, uh, that you can imagine someone cosplaying as uh, is a really important thing um, for Stella. But uh, I'm sure that there, there's a million things that that uh, that I'm leaving out, but. Uh, it's uh i mean work with work with great people and you'll have great results this is basically my my takeaway sure well i love i love your point about cosplay though too that's a that's a great that's something great to take into consideration when designing characters and i i know i i don't but uh that's something i think we should all be thinking about because our fans really do uh, identify some of our fans identify with our characters, so yeah, absolutely. I think you know, imagine, think of <clears throat> of the old times when we could go to conventions and you know, you have <laughs> you know, thousands of people walking around and, and all these all these people and, and you know cosplaying and, and these different characters and you know what stands out, what makes someone stand out in that crowd, and I think it's kind of a, you could also turn that into a metaphor for for for, for making games in general, but. Uh, but yeah, I mean that, that's a, it's it's a it's another lens that you can use to to kind of make sense. And, and yeah, exactly. it's also the you know there's also something to be said about Stella's identity and as a person. Uh, she she's a woman, uh, she's a brown woman, uh, and I think it's something that which is important to us as a man. That's the three games produced by the studio uh, all uh, have like strong female characters uh, as as hero. Uh, that's something which was important to me as well. Uh, when I joined the company, I knew that they wanted to do something different. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, are, there are a bunch of young people, and it's refreshing. I mean, they <laughs> they have an outlook on things, uh, which which tremendously helps me, uh, you know, shaping something that I'm proud of, which is we make games that we feel bring something, you know, uh, different to the table. Um, we've got tons of. I'm I'm in no way, uh, you know. Uh, able, I'm a white man, you know. It's and we all are. Uh, to the, <laughs> the three of us, we are white men, unless mm-hmm. I'm mistaken. No, you're uh, right. And and uh, 
I think it's extremely important to to give the, to give voice to 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 something which is different than you know thirty something male heroes in games. Um, I believe it. I think it's important for us. I think it's great, and I think it's also great that you're you're showing other independent developers, indie developers, you know, sort of an example of how to include diversity in your games and also how to succeed as an independent developer, which is brutally, brutally hard. So what is it like for you to be an indie in 2020? Oh, that's a tough question. <laughs> well, to me, it means that it's, uh, well, it's easy to say now that Spiritor is out because we have a, you know, some success with the game, but it feels freer than anything. It feels like you can actually tackle. Well, I think that to to a degree, I mean, we we are in a very good space because we can do games that express tons of different things. And I think players, there is a market now there for players to understand those things. I mean, it's a, you know, a, it was felt to me like you know, video games were uh, in their infancy like a decade ago, where you had to do like. I was I was always comparing this to you know like Hollywood blockbuster from the fifties where you had to do something of a specific format, uh, otherwise you just wouldn't find your market. Um, and it feels to me like doing an indie game now, uh, you have like that liberty to actually tackle uh, subject matters and and representation in a way that you will find your audience as long as you do it properly. Uh, mm-hmm. So to me, it feels. Nice and better, but maybe we'll think differently because he sees all the the cascading you know, amount of games out there, which is a bit intimidating. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, I think from a creative standpoint, it's it's a, obviously a really really amazing time. I mean, on the business CEO aspect of it, it's it's uh, in a ways. I mean, we're very lucky and very privileged to have started in 2014, even if in 2014, we already felt like it already felt like we'd kind of missed the boat on indie games in a certain way. Um, we'd missed at least that initial, you know, before Steam Greenlight, if you could get your indie game on Steam, you know, you were guaranteed to sell whatever, uh, how many uh, copies, because that was how uh, things were, were being gated. Um, now that those barriers to entry go down, I mean, this is obviously, yeah, uh, this is a tr- like tired subject at this point, but uh, discoverability, blah, 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 um, barriers to entry and everything. But I think what's the hardest for me um, about games right now is that the quality level is just so high. Yeah, really, really high. Um, and in terms of of everything, in terms of visuals, in terms of game design, in terms of quality of experience, in terms of, um, you know, um, the the amount of high quality games that are coming out uh, is just enormous and, and enormously um, extremely uh, you know uh, competitive. Um, so for me, that kind of I, I mean, I, in a way, now the studio. Well, I mean, not in a way, but now the studio is obviously better positioned than we were with our previous games, and, and are hopefully, you know, knock on wood. Um, our, our, our future games do well and, and, and are able to to kind of hit that same uh, that same quality and that same success. But um, every other studio in the world that's kind of our size or making the same kind of game as us or in the same sort of market, everyone's getting better. Everyone's pushing harder. All the budgets are going up, um, which is interesting. I mean, obviously now you, you see like the 
the Zenimax acquisition. It's almost like, uh, I mean, it, but it's it's just the cons- consolidation of the market and kind of the same thing that happened with retail in the, you know, 90s, 2000s, where uh, games were more and more competitive, pushing for shelf space. Now there's infinite shelf space, but it's still the same problems, right, of discoverability and all that. So, so I don't know. It'll be interesting for us to 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 as things move on and and how you know how the market always changes as well, how distribution changes, how how subscription is going to change things, how cloud is going to change things. Uh, it's just. Uh, I mean, there's so many things, and I, I, I haven't been in the, in the games industry for that long, but I'm sure you, you feel it even more uh, the longer you've been in it. But it, it feels like uh, things change every two years completely. Uh, but from what I gather, as long as you're you know, doing the right thing and making high-quality games and, and great experiences, there sh- we should find a way to you know, make some money and reach our, our audience and, and continue. Well, with that in mind, though, if you could change, let's say, two things in the industry, what would they be? Wow. Just two things. Just two. two things. I don't know. The industry is so big. I mean, obviously, uh, that's a well, good question. I, I, have, I have one thing at the very least, um, which is somewhat, I don't know how to, how to say that, but it's a, and I, I kind of brushed up on it a bit earlier, but. As I said, I'm a I'm a 40 year old uh, white dude, and I really really wish there was be more you know, um, uh, more equality in games, more more representation of every gender and, and race and color. To be honest, uh, I I know it's it's easy to say it feels like a consensual thing to say now, but it, I really really believe it is, um, and yeah, that's that's the first thing, and to make sure that we. Um, have that kind of presentation. And for the second point to me, uh, also I'm getting older. I'm, uh, you know, I'm still relatively, relatively young, but I feel that we should try to make, well, I know we already, but, you know, games for old people, like, you know, in a way that games are evolving towards a certain, you know, um, I don't know, like a change paradigm a bit, but it's, it's, it's happening. It's happening right now. Uh, games are really diverse and you see tons of things but yeah it's like game that for for you know an, an older audience made by a more diverse you know cast of, of creative well i will say for the second one you i think it's working at least from my perspective i'm i don't i would i don't know if i'm old i'm 52 yeah. <laughs> and my 18 year old daughter and and i enjoyed spirit fairer equally because and for completely different reasons uh I, I, as I said before, I wasn't looking for a game that would stress me out or feel, make me feel like I constantly had to like achieve certain goals and spirit fairers pacing was perfect for me. And whereas my daughter, my 18 year old loved the connections, the personal connections, the social aspect of the game within the game. Uh, so I don't know. I think, I think you did something really special with spirit. Cool. Cool. I'm really, really, really glad to hear that. Yeah, uh, yeah. I didn't want to to take Will's time as well about about the two things I wanted to change the industry. No, no. But I think I think that's that's for me. Like, I mean, there's so many things, right? There's so many different things in the industry. It's a crazy industry. Everything changes so fast. Um, there are a lot of problems in the industry. There are, there are a lot of things that could be done better. Um, I think one thing that I would like us to continue to try to push for and to do better and to 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 you know, to improve on is to, to make games that, that do 
have a positive impact on people's lives. I think that's, I think that's really important. And it ties back to the purpose that we were talking to before. Um, uh, I, I hate, uh, I mean, you know, maybe we, we shouldn't be quoting Elon Musk, but I think he was the, the person who I saw this from where, you know, you have an impact over your life where, you know, imagine the impact you have as a curve and you could have a little bit of positive impact on a lot of people, or you could have a lot of positive impact on a few amount of people, or maybe you're, you're, you know, uh, super uh, amazing and you can have a huge amount of impact on a lot of people. And to me, that, that really resonated. Uh, my wife is a, is a psychologist, so she falls into the category of people who have a very big impact on a few amount of people. And for me, um, that comparison, and, and that's what, you know, gives meaning a lot to what we're doing. Uh, and obviously, you know, as the founder of the studio and all that, you know, we, I, wanted to, I want us to be able to keep making games for a long time. I want our, our, our team to be happy. I want, you know, we, we, we need to, to, to make money as a studio to survive. Um, but having that purpose for me is, is really important. And I think it's something that, um, you know, uh, that games can do more and can improve people's lives for the better. And I think that's, it's really something that's, that's possible. Like, uh, I mean, I've, it has, it happens in games. Uh, I mean, we're, we're, we're obviously not the first uh, developers to try and do this. Um, but it also happens, you know, in books and movies and everywhere and art, uh, and I think that's kind of the, the 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 fundamental good thing that we as game developers can do is have a positive impact on on people's lives. And I think that's something that should be really, you know, however that means. It's maybe it's pretty maybe it's a, a, a broad answer, but I don't know. For me, it, that's no, that's. Important. I would say it's not. I mean, it's funny you said that because you and I are totally in sync. That is literally our vision statement at Insomniac. It's to create games that have a lasting and positive impact on people's lives. So uh, I, it's great to hear that from you. I think that we as an industry have so much power when it comes mm-hmm. to the messages that we share. Okay. And I think it, I, I really do think developers re- have recognized that over the last five years. And we're starting, we're continuing to see sort of more positive messages and messages of inclusion and right. um, you know positivity. It's all good. And so... I think I'd like to end just with just to get some advice from you guys. Uh, I know that there are many folks who are interested in getting into the games industry who listen to these podcasts and you've charted, I think a a really interesting course and are going from strength to strength as an indie. So what advice do you have to somebody who may be trying to decide if they trying to decide if they want to jump off that cliff and, and do their own thing as an indie developer? Uh, from a creative perspective, I'd say just make games. Make as many games as you can in, mm. in as many formats as you want. Uh, board games, uh, RPGs, uh, I don't know, sports. Try, try to do something and, and see what works with you. See what, what are the things that resonate with what you want to accomplish. Um, my nephew is in love with Factorio, which is an awesome game. Uh, Factorio uh, is, I don't know if you guys know about it, but it's, it's, a, it's a game in which you have to create you know, a, a factory chain so you optimize the way the gears work together. It's absolutely awesome. It's delightful, but it's, it's, really, uh, it's both simple and complicated. Okay. Uh, yet it's a pure system. That's all there is to it. Uh, but the amount of, of 
power it gives you over your own ability to uh, articulate logically a chain of, of operation is absolutely awesome. Uh, and that's a game. On the other end of the spectrum, we have us, which is about characters and people and, and, and dealing with loss and dealing with death. Uh, but we are still live in the same space, which is games in general. Uh, so from an indie perspective uh, and from any developer's perspective, all of this is possible. Uh, and I think if you do something you really, really, really believe in, uh, you have to make sure you try to go as far as possible in that um, on that path. I know it sounds a bit cliche, right? It's like believe in your dreams and you'll do something. But it's uh yeah, well, they, you no have compromise, to... right? I mean I think <laughs> yeah, that's what absolutely. I usually say. Absolutely. And that's, yeah. It's so easy when it comes to budgets, deadlines, and just the reality of life to just find yourself in a comp you know, in compromising positions because sometimes it feels like there's no way out, but there always is, right? If it's your point, if you if you yeah. stick to your guns and are passion your passion. Yeah, but it's absolutely. really tough. It is really tough. Yeah, that focus. Focus is, is really, really, yeah. really important. I think for me, the um, people who'd want to, you know, jump off and or get into games or, or, or whatever uh, through which is just to, to have that strong focus and knowing what, what they want to do. Um, because I think something that, that people often mistake is or, or don't quite uh, or, grasp when they're, when they're starting out is the difference between making a game and making a studio. Hmm. Um, it's two very different things. Uh, and I think it leads to a lot of problems. Um, but it's kind of, it's kind of knowing what you want and why you're doing something, uh, and to go from there. And, and it, cause if you just want to make a game, like there's, there's nothing stopping you. Right. There's like no reason at this point, like all the all the information is out there, all the all the tools are are, are free, um, right. all everything, you know, there, there, there are a million tutorials you can, you know, you can literally buy full games on the Unity asset store right, and, and go from there. Um, but but yeah, I think a, 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 the useful useful bit of advice for me, I think, is to make sure you know the difference between making a making a game and making a studio. That is an excellent distinction and great advice. I, I wish I'd had that advice when I was starting. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know the difference and uh, had to find out the hard way. So that's awesome. Well, guys, if, if people have more questions for you, uh, are you on Twitter? Do you respond to folks on social media? Are there ways yeah, for people to get in contact with you? Uh, we're a small team though, so we're still in the, in the, um, you know, post launch, um, process of more, you know, uh, having like requests about <laughs> the game being bugged and having a problem, but yeah, we have a hotline. We, we're there on Twitter. Uh, we have an awesome, very talented, uh, two guys team in, in PR and marketing, uh, working with us. Wow. Um, so they can, everyone can still hit us with questions. We'll try to, uh, answer, uh, to the best of our uh, capacity, but yeah, absolutely. So Twitter, um, we're pretty much everywhere. Like uh, Facebook, uh, on our website as well. So folks, yeah. who just look up Thunder Lotus on Twitter. It's uh, at Thunder Lotus on Twitter. Yes. Okay. And uh, thunderlotusgames.com for uh, for anything else, but uh, probably Twitter is the best for for questions. Right. Great. Well, Nick, Will, thank you guys so much for your time. Thanks for sharing all that you did, and, and congratulations on on Spiritfarer. It's just such a beautiful game. Uh, thank, oh, thank you very you. much. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us.
Thank you for joining us for the Game Maker's Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org.